This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 74. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramiyasha, and today our power is maximum because we're going to be discussing Dragon Ball Super Broly, the box office mega hit, the 20th film in the Dragon Ball franchise that is sweeping records and is just an amazing feat of spectacle. And so we're going to be talking about that later on in the episode, because how could we not? We couldn't wait to record an at movies on this. We have to talk about it now. Get our initial impressions out. And hopefully you'll enjoy them, because we have a lot to say. But first, we have a lot of news to talk about. Yeah, that's right. We have some book scan lists to cover. Uh, Lum, you want to talk about the uh, graphic novel book scan list for December? That indeed I will talk about. We're going to talk about the... December books can list on which there were many manga, including a ton of My Hero Academia volumes. Guess how many My Hero Academia volumes there were on this list? Eight. Eight My Hero Academia volumes. Out of the 13 manga volumes on this list, eight were MHA. Starting with at number one, MHA volume 16. At number three, we have MHA volume one. Number two coming in at number four. Number three coming in at number five. Volume 15 at number six. Volume four at number 11. Volume five at number 16. And volume 14 at number 18 so much mha it's just dominating but there's still other manga on this list including attack on title volume 26 at number 10 we got splatoon volume 5 at number 15 we got akira himikawa's legend of zelda triad princess volume 4 at number 17 and our old friend tokyo ghoul volume 1 is at 19 and ruby the official manga ontology volume 3 is at 20 Two-thirds of this book scan list are manga. It's dominated by MJ, which is 40% of this list. Quite spectacular. But now, as we go on to the full top 20 manga list for December, we've got even more titles on here to talk about because we got the top 13 already covered in the top 20 graphic novels overall. But, like, we have uh, seven more in the top 20 for manga, including at number 14, Okayato's Monster Musumi, Volume 14. We got Tokyo Ghoul RA, Volume 8, at number 15. We got One in Yusuke Murata's One Punch Man, Volume 1, at number 16. We got MHA, Volume 6, at number 17. Another MHA volume, but we also have more Ruby volumes. Ruby, the official anthology, Volume 1, is at number 18. And Ruby, the official anthology, Volume 2, is at number 19. And rounding it off is another Splatoon volume, Splatoon Volume 1, at number 20. Yeah, really interesting how for the manga list in particular, we have both volume ones for for both the original Tokyo Ghoul and One Punch Man. Um, it seems like the volume ones of those are still doing pretty well, which is good. Those are perennial sellers. They're always attracting new audiences and they're always selling big, it seems. But no, yeah, My Hero Academia just keeps dominating. Um, I'm just wondering when it'll stop. I kind of hope it doesn't stop. <laughs> it's so young and it's it's so young in its lifetime that I think we'll see it continue to stay strong for quite a while yet, unless the manga takes a serious nosedive in terms of popularity, but I don't foresee that happening anytime soon. 
No, yeah, I I think My Hero Academia is here to stay for at least a little while. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess we'll move on to some licensing news. Unfortunately, we don't have any new serializations to uh, to talk about this episode. At least nothing notable. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so we're just going to move on to some serialization news. And uh, we're going to start off with some Yen Press stuff. Uh, Yen Press has licensed some some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, all of which will be coming out this July 2019. And uh, first things first, probably the license I am the most excited about out of this uh, sort of collection here is Skullface bookseller Honda-san uh, from Honda. So for those who don't know, this series actually had an anime uh, literally the season before this current one. Um, you can watch all of it on Crunchyroll right now. I, I try my best to keep up with it week to week because uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really, uh, at least from what I've seen of it, um, I thought it was really funny, really cute. I, I thought it was just kind of interesting to see a series about like what it's like working in a bookstore. I don't know. Alum, have you seen any of this? I have not. I've seen a lot of it floating on my timeline, though, and indeed looks very charming, and I do intend to check it out one of these days. I was going to say, I, 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 think, I think you would enjoy this. It, see, it seems like something, it, seem, it seems pretty up your alley, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, pr- pretty much, you know, if the title doesn't already say it, it's basically a comedy manga about a skeleton who works in a Japanese bookstore and it's just it's cute it's fun and um I really hope people support this because I mean obviously like if Yen Press has already like picked this up like I mean I have to imagine that like it probably did well enough on Crunchyroll and also you know with the influx of people like talking about it on social media probably helped to get licensed I'm assuming so yeah I'm definitely going to be picking this up definitely can't wait to read this uh, up next, we have uh, Momo Tachibana's Little Witch Academia, The Nonsensical Witch, and The Country of Fairies novel, in which uh, Akko takes a trip to a hill where fairies gather and meets the hill's guardian, uh, Sifra. Uh, when Akko finds out that Sifra's dog and cat are missing, she sets out with Lotte and Susie to find them. So, you know, if you're a fan of Little Witch Academia and you want more adventures in the in the world of Little Witch Academia, here you go. So... You know, I know Little Witch Academia is a very beloved franchise at this point. Um, so, you know, if you want more of it, there you go. Uh, next up, we have Count Fujiwara's Suffering from Mahito Aube, uh, which is a story told from the point of view of a self-important cat who fancies himself a count. He lives with two strange sisters, uh, the older one who is a shut-in and the younger one who secretly crushes on her sister, um, which... Yeah, that that are that that took a strange turn. Um so I don't know, that that sounds like a sounds interesting in in, in the sense of like the the story is just told from the point of view of this cat, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh next up, we have Cocoon Entwined from Yuriko Hara. Uh, as the synopsis reads, clad in school uniforms, practically breathing with life, are the girls of Hoshimiya's Girls Academy. When a certain incident, quote unquote, rocks the academy, hidden feelings will be entwined in this pure girls' love story. So, looks like another Yuri title. So that's something to be excited about. I think this next one uh, seems. I mean, I guess next to Honda is probably the most interesting to me out of this uh, group is secretly I've been suffering about being sexless from Togame, 
in which it is about uh, this couple who, but basically the woman in the relationship has a huge sex drive that is just not being met by her male partner, and she has no choice but to get her fix elsewhere. So this uh, synopsis is a little disingenuous for what the series is about. I've heard of the series before, and what the premise is is that in this uh, couple, like the the husband, he doesn't ha- he has erectile dysfunction. Really? Okay. So like he can't satisfy uh his partner because you know he just can't get it up and stuff you know but like she married him knowing that like they they love each other but like it's about kind of like the the drama and the struggle you know kind of like having a fulfilling like emotional relationship when they can't really get intimate because of this and so this leads to affairs it leads to a lot of conflict so it's like more of a it's it's more of a serious drama that's really exploring like the emotions and the psychology of these characters in the situation. It's kind of based on a re- it's an autobiographical essay manga, so it's based on a re- real life experiences and stuff. So like it's an essay manga in the vein of my lesbian experience of loneliness. Uh, and I, I this synopsis kind of makes it seem like more of a scandalous, steamy kind of series. Like, ooh, she's she just really wants sex and wants to have a, a so she's has to she having an affair because she can't get enough sex from her husband. Is that that's not really that's not really the tone of the series. It's like more of a somber kind of serious kind of story. Hmm. I mean, the synopsis combined with like I guess the uh, the 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 cover because the. Um, I don't know. It it just I honestly I I have no prior knowledge about this series, which is why I just kind of took the synopsis at face value. Well, I mean, even looking at the cover, you can definitely see a contrast because that's not the face of like someone who is like she's like nymphomaniac. Like she's like looking at her husband, and she has like kind of a very sad expression on her face. Like you can tell that this is like. The suffering in the title is like a key word. Like this is really putting a lot of stress on their relationship, and like it's a it's leading to a bunch of bad, guilty emotions. Um. So so upon zooming in on my browser, yeah, I I that's definitely a frown because from from like a distance to me it looked more like a smile too. Uh. But that, that that's that's to, that's totally just me. I'm I'm not saying that's like definitely it, but no, yeah, like I. Like looking looking closer at the cover, that that's definitely the case there. Um, so that's that's interesting. I wonder why they went with such a, a misleading synopsis. Uh, to sell books, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I'm really lo- I'm looking forward to it because I've heard a lot of good things about it. I really enjoy autobiographical essay manga like Lesbian Experience, and I think this will also delve into really personal emotions in the same way as Nakata Gabi's books have. So I'm looking forward to reading this one. Honestly, with the way you've described it, I'm 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 just that much more interested in it now. So I I definitely would like to read this if I had the chance here. But uh, moving on, we also have uh, the addition of because uh, I think we mentioned before on the podcast about the Wolf Wolf story uh, novels that got picked up by Yen Press a couple months back, uh, in which now they've also basically picked up uh, the manga version of that. Uh, for those who don't know, it's it's basically a sort of sort of an isekai thing where um, this guy who's basically a salary man who he basically dies from working too much. He wishes he could be. 
uh, basically reincarnated as a dog, and uh, he he gets that wish, and and that's basically the premise of that. Um, so if you're a fan of the novels, or maybe you just prefer manga over light novels, then here you go. And then lastly, we have uh, the survived alchemist with a dream of quiet town life. Uh, both the light novels and the manga adaptation uh, from Usata Nonohara in which uh, 200 years ago, the kingdom of Endalgia was destroyed by the monsters of the demon forest, and the sole survivor is an alchemist named Mariella, who managed to escape through suspended animation. When she wakes up two centuries later, she learns that alchemists have gone extinct, and potions are now at a high premium. But what does the last alchemist standing want more than anything else? A laid-back, quiet town life. This, I mean, speaking of somber, this this just sounds really sad. <laughs> it's like you, you you wake up and like all your fellow alchemists are just gone, and I mean, I mean, like you know, what else can you do but just kind of like you know, just kind of live out the rest of your life peacefully? Like that's that's almost kind of depressing in a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems kind of more like a slice of life series. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure that's probably more so the tone. I'm just saying, like the the implications of that just kind of just kind of make me a little sad. Yeah, but um, no, that that sounds that sounds like a that sounds like a really interesting uh, premise. Um, I wouldn't mind checking this out as well. Definitely. But yeah, I, I guess out of all these, like, uh, what are the titles you're kind of interested in? I think we're both in agreement that Skullface, Honda-san, and Secretly, I've been serving by Mean Sexist are like the two titles that really stand out among this group and the ones that i'm most keen to read yeah so um some some cool stuff from yen press i can't wait to pick up some of these most definitely and we've also got a lot of cool stuff from seven seas because they have once again drowned us in a tidal wave of licenses i Started told you off- <laughs> yeah they can't wait they couldn't give us any time to rest i i said in the last episode our news was going to quadruple Oh, yeah. I mean, Seven (laughs) Seas alone, we have to thank for that. Because first up, they've licensed another work by Ichigo Takano of Orange Fame called Become You Kimi Ninare, which is slated to release on September 10th. It's about a high school musician who has dreams of stardom, but his bandmates ditch him. And so in an act of desperation, he strong arms his sullen classmate to forming a new band with him. It was apparently inspired by a song by the band Kobukuro called Kimi ni Nare, which debuted in the same month as the manga. When uh, that artist, Kobukuro, performed the ending theme song for the Orange Anime. So very interesting. If this gets adapted into anime, maybe that will be the opening theme. I would hope so. I mean, that would, that would just make sense to me. Then we've got a another Yuri title by K. Hamuro called Our Wonderful Days, which is slated for release on November 12th, about a girl who is struck speechless at the sight of a beautiful new transfer student, and they have a deep connection going all the way back to their childhood, and then as they reconnect, they start to grow romantic feelings towards each other. It's a series that was very popular on Pixiv and now compiled into book form. Then we've got How to Train Your Devil by Tonchi Kataoka, which is going to release on October 8th. It's about a young woman in a magical world where demons turn in humankind. She takes up a sword, 
to become their champion. But unfortunately, the reigning demon lord is a baby, and she can't exactly slay a baby. So she believes she can reform the baby and turn him to the side of good. But unfortunately, a contract binds her to be the baby demon lord's surrogate parent until he performs enough good deeds to prove his worth. So, what can I roll that for a mighty hero? Oh, mama. So, <laughs> Seven Seas did a good job with that. But, yeah, now it's coming out on October 8th. But if you want more fantasy, you're in luck because there's also a series called Reincarnated as a Sword by Yu Tanaka, which is coming out on August 6th. And that's about a 30-year-old sand free man and a games antagonist who's killed in a car accident. He's reborn in a fantasy world, but in the form of a sword. And now he's in search of a beautiful woman to wield him. And a cat named Fran might be the exact partner he needs. So an Isekai series with a twist. You're not reborn as a hero, but it's the sword. I'm kind of surprised that hasn't been done already. I mean, you'd think that they'd do that first before the one where you're reincarnated as a wedding machine. Or a dog. Or a dog or a spider. <laughs> or all sorts of things. But, hey, someone made the presence a reality. But there's even more stuff from Seven Seas. Because they've also licensed Setona Mizushiro's The Quartered Mouse Dreams of Cheese. Which is coming out on November 5th. And they've also got a sequel, The Carp on the Chopping Block Jumps Twice. That will be out on a later date. This is a boys love title for mature readers. About a weak-willed salaryman and a troubled manager who is cheating on his wife. But his wife hires a private eye to expose his affair. And the private eye is an underclassman he knew in college. And the underclassman is gay, he's always had a crush on the salary man, and so he offers to hide his infidelity in exchange for a make-out session with him that he always fantasizes about. And so the salary man agrees, thinking it'll save his marriage, but of course, things spiral out of control. It sounds like a complicated web of lies and betrayal. Now that's scandalous. Oh, indeed. But in less scandalous things, we've also got Ushio Shirotori's Ghostly Things, which is coming out on October 1st, which is about a high school student who moves into a notoriously haunted house with her cat, and she's disturbed by strange sounds and happenings, but then she discovers a small package that leads to a hidden lord floor that's full of spirits and a tiny supernatural manager, and if she calls this place home, she'll have to leave, uh, she'll have to have deal with these ghostly denizens, and also find a book that may be the key to locating her missing mother. Then, we've got more Ari Furetta series coming out. We've got the first volume of Ari Furetta from Commonplace to World Strongest Zero, which is getting a print and digital release on September 10th. And the first volume of Ari Furetta I Love Isekai is going to get a print and digital release on December 10th. And so, uh, from Commonplace to World Strongest Zero, it takes place before the character Hajime was transported to Tortress. And the synergist Oscar Orcus has his own adventure, but not willingly. Oscar is a simple man, keeps his head down to earn money, support, and orphanage until Milde Reisen bursts into his life, and she wants Oscar to join her in a quest to defeat the gods. Oscar refuses to chase after that danger until that danger finds a way to him. And so this series was originally published by the creator Ryo Shirakomi in 
December 2017, General Club has a night has already licensed the novel version, but now the manga version is even out by some CDs. And uh, yeah, it's coming out by uh, Taro Kamichi. And then uh, I refer to I Love Music as a four-panel slice of life comedy manga by Misaki Mori. And all right, but we're not even done because there's still more stuff that Seven Seas is licensed, including. A new Neon Genesis Evangelion light novel called Neon Genesis Evangelion Anima, which is the only light novel series for this franchise and depicts an alternate ending from the TV show. The first one of this is going to come out on print and digital on October 29th. It's written by Ikuto Yamashita. It was serialized between 2008 and 2013. It's basically the plot of Evangelion, but with a different ending. Then we've got... The wizard, the wise, wise beast of the wizarding wisdoms. Lots of W I Z words in there by Nagabe. That's gonna come out on October first. It's an omnibus of boys' love stories that takes place in a forest which has a school of mysterious magical people. There's wisdoms, which is an institution. Attended by beastmen of all kinds, and the studious fantasy creatures come there to live, learn, and perhaps even fall in love in this enchanting space. And then we've got Asaya Miyanagi's Nikola traveling around the demon's world, which is going to come out on October 27th, which is a kid-friendly story. It takes place in a land populated by demons, where the main character, Nicola, stands out because she's a human girl traveling with her demon friend, Simon. And Nicola is often spirited, so she gets over her head, and over her head a lot, but she's got her own magic powers to help her when things get tough. And then we've got The Brave Tuber by Takahito Uzaki and Ikaro. And the Brave Tuber is about this fantasy world where two adventurers are trying to build a fan base by getting more subscribers for their streamed videos, even if it means taking on the Demon Lord itself. So that's <laughs> coming out on September 10th. And yeah, that's about it for all the Seven Seas licenses. There were a lot, a lot of fantasy and isekai work. But a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah, I think um uh what was I already forget the name of it. Uh Kimi Kimini no Nare. The 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 first title we mentioned. Uh, I, I I think I I really I it's it's weird. I wasn't um I don't want to say I didn't like orange, but like I'm I'm mostly just kind of neutral on it. Uh but I would be interested in more works from that author, so I would like to check that out. Um some of the Isekai stuff actually doesn't sound too bad this time around some of it actually does sound kind of interesting um again i still think it's it's pretty surprising that i still haven't seen an isekai about a guy who becomes a sword that just kind of tickles me a little <laughs> bit um i especially like the idea of an isekai about a guy who just wants to make a career on youtube um, yeah that that sounds pretty funny actually i would actually check that out you can totally tell from the cover that th these main characters are total tunies. <laughs> they're over the top edgy kids it's great um even that um even that boys love title i think uh is something i would read actually that just sounds that that that's that sounds like the kind of drama i could get into actually mm -hmm. 
For me, I think I'm really interested in Nicola traveling on the Demon's World. The art just looks really nice, storybook-esque, and very cute. So I think I'd quite enjoy that. And I think that uh, How to Train Your Devil actually sounds like a fun premise. A very different kind of story from like a a hero has to defeat and kill the Demon Lord, but now instead she has to reform it. I think that's a nice twist on things. And yeah, in general, I think that Seven Seas has licensed quite an eclectic sort of titles that all sound quite interesting. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely want to check out some of these. But to kind of finish out our licensing news, uh, something that I'm I'm sure we're both very excited about, in that uh, earlier in the week at the time we're recording this anyway, uh, Viz has announced that uh, they are going to be publishing a new Dragon Ball art book. Uh, which they will be releasing as Dragon Ball, A Visual History, which will be releasing this fall. This release in particular is basically an English release of the Dragon Ball Chogashu, which is essentially basically an updated version of the first Daizenchu art book that uh, I believe is released a, like a while back. And uh, you know, the, the, like the biggest difference with this is that it's ba- it's basically a more updated collection of Toriyama's uh, Dragon Ball artwork, um, so you know, you know, a, a more comprehensive collection of Dragon Ball artwork. I can definitely get behind that. Well, I'm, I'm sure you're very excited about this as well. Of course, it. I'm. Sh- I love Toriyama's color artwork, so I'm sure this will be a very beautiful release, and I can't wait to get it and flip through it myself. Um, I guess something else also worth mentioning is that um, v- Viz tweeted about this using the um, using the cover from the original Japanese release, which apparently they won't be using. Which I'm I'm a little sad about that because I really love that cover. Yeah, it's a really good design. I think um, I'm I'm still interested in seeing uh, what kind of cover they come up with. I'm I'm sure it'll be good. Um, but no, yeah, just just I. You know, for the longest time, I thought about seeking out that first Daisenshu art book, but like now that they're coming out with this, I I I might just wait and pick this up. Honestly, like especially if it's going to include even more artwork that wasn't included in that original Daisenshu in the first place. So you know, mm-hmm, definitely. Um, but that's pretty much about it for licensing news. Indeed, it is, and that's round. Let's go uh, into some brief industry news. First off, is MediaDrew has acquired. M-A-L, they have basically acquired it from its previous owner, D-Nay. D-Nay is going to continue to operate the site for the next few weeks as a bunch of logistics and legal hurdles are being worked out. And then after that, the new team for me to do is going to take over and have their new vision for the site's future set in store. And they plan to enhance M-A-L's functions as an overseas ebook distribution and marketing platform. So, yeah, I mean, we'll see what this will lead to uh, and how MAL will change from its current state. But it's interesting to see MediaDo, who has, you know, while I've been publishing translations of manga like Abaki and stuff, now have bought a site like MAL, which is probably like the most popular like database site for anime fans to like look up anime and then, you know, make their lists and all that. So very curious. Hopefully it leads to a more functional website just overall yeah we'll see what comes out of that i guess if anything but uh moving on uh so some interesting stuff is happening in africa of all places 
in where uh, the official website for Hakusensha's Manga Park website and app uh, revealed recently that the Manga Park W app has launched in Africa. Uh, the app is currently available in both Kenya and Nigeria, and there are plans to release it in more countries in Africa. The app in particular uh, features such series as Berserk, Hanakimi, uh, Maid Sama, Vampire Night, Oran High School Host Club, Yona of the Dawn, and Detroit Metal City. And uh, more series are on the way for release on the app in the future. The app in particular is available to download for free, but it also includes in-app purchases. And with the app, uh, Hakusensha hopes to take the lead in the Africa market, uh, which has limited access to official manga content and as well aims to uh, proactively prevent the spread of pirated content by entering the African market. So that's 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 a really cool thing to see, uh, to see a, a manga company like, you know, uh, give some service to a country who doesn't have access to more official content. That's all. That's always nice to see. Most definitely. I'm glad that African manga fans now have a legal app in which they can read a bunch of great series on there. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a collection of like some really good titles, actually. But yeah, if you live in Africa uh, and you've always wanted to read Berserk or something, you know, you have the chance to read it now, officially. Yeah, and a bunch of great shoujo titles like Oran, Maid-sama, and Hanakimi. As well, D- Detroit Metal City. We cannot overlook Detroit Metal City. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's about it for any industry stuff. That's right, so let's round off with a few miscellaneous pieces of news, including the some convention-related news. Satoshi Shiki, a well-known manga creator and illustrator, is coming to SakuraCon in Seattle. They were the creator of Daphne in the Blue, as well as the artist for the Attack on Titan Before the Fall manga. And so they're going to be coming over to SakuraCon, which is going to be Shiki's first at SakuraCon and his first appearance at an American convention since 2003. So if you're heading out to SakuraCon at the Washington State Convention Center in Seattle from April 19th to 21st, uh, definitely go check out whatever events you'll be at. Uh, But moving on from that, uh, we also have a really cool event going on here in the U.S., involving uh, Naoki Urasawa, of all people. The Japan House venue in Los Angeles will be hosting This Is Manga, The Art of Naoki Urasawa, which is an exhibit that, uh, at the time of this recording, will have started running on January 23rd, but don't worry, it'll be running until March 28th. Uh, The exhibition in particular is a retrospective on the creator's career with more than 400 original drawings and storyboards. Uh, the exhibition will also change out a Yawara exhibit bi-weekly to showcase four consecutive stories, thus imitating the serial manga publication style, which I think is kind of cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're a fan of Urasawa and you're in Los Angeles for the next two months, what are you doing? You need to go see this. <laughs> yeah, I wish I was in LA so I could attend this. This sounds really awesome. And and hey, if uh, if you're listening to the podcast and you got to go to the exhibit, uh, we'd love to have you on to maybe talk about it, because I would love to hear about this. Most definitely. Uh, but there's not really much else to say about that. Um, I guess, uh, speaking of Urasawa, Lum, if you want to talk about the next story. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Urasawa, here's another thing to get, get excited about. 
both Naoki Urasawa and Akira Toyama have been nominated for the Eisner Hall of Fame. They are part of a selection of 16 nominees, four of whom will be selected by vote to be inducted into the Hall of Fame in this year's Eisners. So it's really awesome that finally uh, Urasawa and Toriyama are being nominated for this award. I hope they are inducted in. Uh, people who can vote on the Eisners, uh, creative professionals working in the comics or related industries, publishers, editors, retailers, graphic novel librarians, and comic historians and educators can vote online now for their four nominees, and the vote can continue till uh, March 15th. So, you know, uh, definitely show them your support if you are working in the comics industry. And yeah, I'm crossing my fingers that they'll be inducted and join the ranks of other Japanese inductees of the Eisners, like Tezuka, Koike, Kojima, Otomo, and of course, Rogunkyo Takashi. I'm really rooting for the both of them because they both honestly deserve it. Mm-hmm. Really looking forward to that. But we've also uh, got some film news related now. And bef- honestly, the big news, uh, we'll have a lot to talk about. So let's briefly just mention that there's a new Lupin film coming this winter, 2019. It was revealed for the, from the Tokyo uh, official Twitter account for NTV's Kinyo Roadshow time slot. Uh, and that's where that, that time slot previously aired the Italian game special from 2016. So, no one knows what this film will really be, if it will be theatrical, whether it will be like a kind of a direct-to-video thing, but it, or whether it will be a TV special. So, But it's something to look forward to, and uh, I'm really excited to see what it will be all about. I'm hoping it will be a new theatrical feature, because then maybe we get a theatrical screening of it, and I, I'd love to see another Lupin film in the theaters again. So, okay, but with that out of the way, we gotta talk about Broly. And before we get into our thoughts about the movie itself, we gotta talk about Broly's box office, because this is insane, people. It is insane how successful Broly is. So on opening night, on Wednesday, Broly grossed $7.06 million at the box office in its 1,250 venues. And it grossed over $7 million. Do you want to know what the weekend gross for Resurrection F was? $1.8 million. Weekend gross. First weekend gross. In one night, Broly got like three times as much as Resurrection F did in three days. Not only that... Resurrection F's lifetime gross in its two-week theatrical run in the United States was about over $8 million, and Broly got $7 million in one night. In two days, Broly earned over $10 million. It surpassed Resurrection F's gross. And now, reports are coming in that Broly is standing at a $21 million gross right now in the United States. At the time of this recording, we're recording this on Sunday the 20th. So box office returns through Saturday. We're getting reports now that Broly is over $21 million. And I I mean, the street day for Broly, people were speculating we're going to be like $8.7 million. But like, I think we've already surpassed what those expectations are. I think that we're like, this. the street day for Broly is like at 10 mil now. 
So Broly keeps surpassing box office expectations. You know, to give you another measure of how successful Broly is, Glass was the big Hollywood blockbuster film this weekend, right? M. Night Shyamalan's new film. How much did that get on its opening night? 3.7 million. Half of what Broly got on Broly's opening night. Now, Glass is going to make more money this weekend because it's in three times as many theaters. And it was, you know, more heavily mainstreamly promoted. But, like, Glass is underperforming at the box office compared to what people were expecting. People were thinking Glass would make 70 mil this weekend, and projections are just going lower and lower. Turnout is not going well for Glass in terms of, like, what they expected. It's looking to find, have a final run this weekend of, like, around 42 million. But, like, Broly is surpassing box office expectations. People thought Broly's, like... And complete theatrical run might surpass 20 million, but it's already done that halfway into the run. People are now speculating that the domestic end result of Broly will be over 50 million. That's insane. So to, let's put this in context of other anime releases here. So where Broly is standing now at 21 million puts it already number three among all the anime films released theatrically in the United States. It is number three, only behind Pokemon the first movie and Pokemon the movie 2000. It has surpassed the box office growth for Yu-Gi-Oh! the movie, which had a lifetime gross of $90 million. It surpassed Secret World of Arrietty, also $90 million. Ponyo Spirited Away surpassed them. Resurrection F blew it and blown it away. Uh, and if people are speculating that it's going to end its lifetime of its box office here in the U.S. at 50 million, that's going to make it surpass Pokemon the Movie 2000, which had 43 million in its lifetime growth. It'll end up number two behind Pokemon the first movie. And Pokemon the first movie was released in 3,000 theaters. Three times as many theaters as Dragon Ball Super Bro. So, really... Really, just think about that. It's mind-blowing. Uh, in terms of, like, opening weekend nights, there's just so many other, like, accolades you could give Broly. But this is the thing. Like, this movie has proven it has just... It is just blowing away any expectations for box office analysts. And it's also, like, a huge record for, like, anime films at the box office in, ter in terms of, like, being such a high performer. Like, the most high-performing anime film at the U.S. box office since Pokemon the first movie 20 years ago. And you know what is even more satisfying? Already, Dragon Ball Super Broly has made more in its box office run than Dragon Ball Evolution. <laughs> Dragon Ball Evolution only made uh, 9.3 million at the U.S. box office. Oh, wow. So in two days, Dragon Ball Super Broly, in half the theaters that Evolution ran in, surpassed that film's box office gross. To say nothing about the international box office, which Broly has just trampled. So, the success of Broly has shown, I think, uh, Hollywood, anyone who's paying attention to this in the, in the entertainment world, that there's a huge audience for Dragon Ball. People are hungry for Dragon Ball, and they're hungry for Dragon Ball done right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure Disney, now that they own Fox, and hence the rights to making more Dragon Ball live-action movies, are like, hmm, 
you know, there could be a market here. Oh, <laughs> and no. uh, who, know, who knows what that could lead to. But honestly, the success of Broly only means good things for, like, the recognition of anime films and just getting more anime films theatrically released over here. I mean, it certainly is a good sign for the Dragon Ball franchise. I'm sure that Toei's going to look at this and see, oh, my God, we got to make more films in the future. Uh, we're not, we shouldn't just focus on the TV show. We got to also plan to, you know, have a another big event film every couple of years like an avengers movie and like yeah i mean i think this is just so validating and vindicating if you are an anime fan and a dragon ball fan to just have like every all the hollywood box office analysts were like oh what how's glass gonna do glass is gonna be the big story of this weekend but that's not the big story of this weekend it might be earning more than broly ultimately but the big story of this weekend the big movie that that has surprised everyone has been Dragon Ball Super Broly. And uh, I, as a Dragon Ball fan, I'm just so overjoyed about that. I, I, don't, I don't know, love. I'm, personally, I'm really interested in what M. Night Shyamalan is doing nowadays because, you know, he, he's a visionary. I mean, you joke, but people were really excited about Glass as the conclusion of the Unbreakable trilogy. And Unbreakable and Split were well-reviewed uh, and well-received films. So, you know, people had high expectations for glass you know and it's that's fair yeah not a critical success and it's not i mean it's i mean glass is not going to be doing bad glass is not like a box office failure by any stretch because it was such a low budget film at only 20 million to make that you know it'll it'll get a net profit but it's definitely like an underwhelming return for what they were expecting Whereas Broly is like more standout for like blowing away all expectations. So Broly is going to end its box office run at 50 mil when people were expecting that, you know, oh, maybe it'll end its run at like 20 mil. But, you know, that's that's insane. Like defiance of expectations that I think is going to be turning a lot of heads and like get box office analysts who don't follow anime, the anime scene or like anime films like go, how did this happen? How did a fathom event that was in third of the films of a big blockbuster release like Glass. Like, how did it, how has, how has this grossed as much? Especially when so many of the locations playing this movie were only playing it once a day. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what to say other than, like, I saw this movie doing well. Like, I, there was no doubt in my mind that, like, this was going to make money. But I never thought there'd be a possibility that, like, this was going to be possibly the second highest grossing anime movie in the u.s like that's that's insane to me Mm -hmm. um but i i guess we could just kind of transition into like because we gotta talk about the movie a little bit oh yeah we gotta i mean it's it's safe to say i think at this point that you at least want to do an app movies on this like proper i think in the future but i mean like this movie is so massive like we we at least got to talk about it a little bit we definitely have to. I definitely want to. Because, I mean, Broly's success is not undeserved at all. Like, Broly is the... It is the best made Dragon Ball movie ever, for sure. The accomplishments of the animation is just amazing. Uh, and the construction of the story, the storytelling is just superb. And th- there's just so much to dig into there. Yeah, I mean, there's like there's like so much we could talk about with this movie, 
but you know, I I also don't want to talk about everything because I know that you wanted you want to do an app movies about this later at some point. So we'll definitely go more into the our Toss and Broly. Have a more in depth discussion on that at movies episode. Right now, let's just talk about our initial impressions on the film and just like what we've got out of out of it and like just some straight thoughts about the film like what we think it did really well why we think it's really turned a big pullout out at the u.s box office uh let's just talk about like what we think makes this movie such a successful dragon ball film in every regard Mm. uh slight, slight spoiler warning just in case you haven't seen the movie yet but i mean like you know just just in case you don't want to listen and you because you don't want to be spoiled on anything but basically you know, it, it, like if you're gonna turn off the episode right now, we're just gonna say go see this movie. Like you, like if you are interested in this movie at all, and if you are, if you are a Dragon Ball fan, even if you're not a Dragon Ball fan, I would say if you're just a fan of animation and you want to see good animation, you want to see some really well choreographed fights. Like you need to go see this movie. Like I, I want that to be the takeaway for anyone who might not want to listen to any like any straight plot details or anything but yeah like this is this is this is worth your time like if you don't see this in theaters like you're missing out most definitely like if you are a dragon ball fan this is going to be a treat for you i mean there are people who have some mixed feelings on the story but like just in terms of spectacle just in terms of like how enjoyable the movie is to watch start to finish and just the beauty of the animation you got to see this this is the best dragon ball has ever looked oh yeah and like there are things done in this movie that I don't think have ever been done in the franchise like as a whole which I think I I love that I can say that about a dragon ball movie because uh, one one scene I really loved in particular uh, was uh, was something that really uh, kind of caught me off guard was uh, there's a particular moment where um, it, it's it's I don't know if I'll be able to explain it uh, uh, well enough but like but, but basically you know as like Goku starts to fight Broly in particular you know th- there's this great shot where like you kind you see Goku blast a Kamehameha like right at the screen. But then it kind of like goes off to the side and you're kind of wondering like, huh, what's going on? Did he like miss? But then like as the scene goes on, you realize you're in Broly's point of view. And it it, it, it kind of takes you a second to realize it. But when you do, it's like, oh, my God, like like just just there are just certain like things like that, that this movie does that like I'm kind of surprised the franchise has never done. Honestly, like to me, it's like such a small thing, but it's like. I don't know. I I just I just thought little touches like that were really cool. Like 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 the fights, I guess overall like it felt like this weird mix of like you know, there's obvi- there's a lot going on and you know, there are times where like it can maybe get a little overwhelming but at the same time it's still really enjoyable to watch. Like you can still you you still have a firm grasp of, of like what's going on. You don't ever feel like so lost that it's like unwatchable. It's so fast, but it's just so captivating. Like, it's just so well storyboarded, so your eye can follow what's going on. But, like, this really captures what, you know, Dragon Ball is trying to convey, that these fights are, like, faster than the eye can follow. They've been, Dragon Ball is trying to communicate that idea since, like, the very beginning. This is the first time it's really felt that way. Like, you really can feel like these characters are moving so fast you can barely keep up. 
like, you know, no- normally within the franchise, you're kind of in the point of view of, like, the characters watching the fights, where, and, you know, Toriyama's joked about this, like, early on in the story about, like, how, you know, sometimes the fights move so fast that, like, you literally have to have somebody come in and, like, reenact them. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, what was it, the 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 fight between, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Jackie Chun and Goku during one of the first tournaments where, like, literally one of them has to, like, uh, move one move at a time so that the audience can, like, keep up with what they're doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was Jackie cutting Krillin, actually. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, But, no, yeah, I just kind of, it just made me think about that and, like, how, like, you know, like I said, we're always kind of in the point of view of the spectator, but, like, that's what I really loved about this movie was, like, it was cool to be in the point of view of the people actually fighting. Yeah, it was like a Gohan trying to watch Yamcha versus the Cybermen. It reminded me of that, like, trying to stream my eye to keep up and just barely, but, like, just being amazed at the sheer intensity and the sheer speed of everything that's going on. But also just the gorgeous character animation. What I really love about the animation in this movie is, like, it's not just a bunch of punching and just random movement it's like you the interiority of the characters is so perfectly conveyed like there's purposeful movement in this movie in this animation like the way broly fights differs from the way vegeta fights and the way goku fights and that's just captured so sub- subtly and so perfectly and i just was amazed by how they could do that it, they like this really feels like oh there's a specific way this character fights is being communicated here. Like, this movie was promoted with the tagline, the story of the science is told through combat. And the fight definitely was telling a story here. We're definitely seeing, like, oh, Vegeta is starting out this fight cocky. He's, like, testing, playing with Broly. But then he starts getting serious the more Broly pushes him. Broly starts out not really knowing how to use his strength. But even though he becomes wilder and wilder, he becomes, like, more, like, focused. He's learning as he fights. And you can see that in how he actually moves and, uh, like, how he starts fighting later on. You can see Goku just being relaxed and, like, taking the fight easy, like, as he's fighting Broly at the beginning, you know, and his, like, so simple, elegant movements as a Super Saiyan God. Like, it's not just the spectacle of what's happening that's impressing me. It's, like, the quality of the character animation in this film is just outstanding. That even in these, like, chaotic fight scenes... Like, the animators have retained the the interiority, like, the personality of who these characters are and how they move. And it's just outstanding. I think the moment that really conveys how amazing the character animation is in this movie the most is, uh, even going back as far as, like, the teaser we got for the movie, because they they use that footage in this movie of, like, you can see Goku just getting himself psyched up, kind of bouncing around. Yes! Getting, like, you know, like... I think that's the first time in this franchise where, like, like I feel like I'm in Goku's shoes. Like, I am just as excited to see him fight as he is to fight. And I think that was that was such a powerful moment for me seeing this movie. Like, I've I've never felt like that in this franchise at all. Like, it was amazing. It was definitely like the way that man. How they can communicate the weight of every blow, how they can communicate, like, the looseness of the body, like, like still keep the consistency of the form of the body. It's just, man, this is just top-notch talent at work here. 
like animators at the peak of their game and they have such creative artistic decisions like the way that transformations are rendered in this movie are like some of the most exciting and dramatic they've ever been oh yeah like every transformation is given fanfare and it feels like a spectacle it feels like an event that's happening and for so long in dragon ball like super like a lot of the transformations have lost their luster like they don't feel special anymore and this movie made them feel special again it gave you chills at when they do these dramatic turnarounds and Vegeta is going Super Saiyan and then Super Saiyan God. And of course, when Goku is going Super Saiyan Blue is just... this That's the most spectacular Super Saiyan Blue has ever looked. Ever. Even with like... It's debatable whether in that sequence that Goku's hair color changed as white is an homage to Ultra Instinct or not. But even then, the way they play with color in this movie, the cell transformations, like with Vegeta's hair, like briefly going green as he's going Super Saiyan, and all these other cool artistic tricks are just so, just so impactful. And just, this movie is just full of beautiful color. In addition, just amazing, like, effects work and, desi- and design work and animation. Like, it is gorgeous to look at. Even the very little CG that they used throughout this movie looked pretty good as well, even. Yeah, these look like fighters models and how nice and cel-shaded and true to the, like, anime aesthetic they were. As opposed to Resurrection Seth, like, more, oh, these are video gamey models. These are, like, <laughs> PlayStation 2 models. <laughs> Like, this, these are felt like, these integrated with the traditional animation well. And you can tell that there are times where they actually rotoscope traditional animation over, like, computer-generated animation. So that even, that helped even more. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned fighters, because, like, I forget where in the movie, but there was, like, a particular, like, like, there, there was a point in the movie where, like, you got to take a better look at some of the 3D models in the movie for at least, like, a split second, and, like... That that was the first thing that came to mind as well as like wow this this almost looks like fighters, <laughs> um, which I think I think was a good choice because um, I I haven't played any of the game myself but like even I even I can see that like the models and fighters look amazing so um, but no yeah um, I mean we we could sit here and talk about the animation like all day because like holy shit this I mean this is obviously like the best looking Dragon Ball thing ever made oh yeah I um. Yeah, and it's like you said, like, I I feel like I have, like, very mixed opinions on the story. I feel like, overall, I think it's a good story, but I also feel like there are parts where, like, it feels a little unfocused as to, like, what what the movie wants to accomplish. Like, it, it really seemed like throughout the beginning of the film, basically up until the fighting starts, that the movie wants us to see Broly as our protagonist, which I think is really effective up until then. But it's when the fighting starts that I feel like the focus kind of slowly goes away from Broly back to Goku and Vegeta, which is a weird complaint because it makes sense because, you know, Goku and Vegeta, obviously, they're usually our protagonists, like, especially Goku. Um, So... saying that out loud like it kind of feels like a weird complaint but like it kind of feels like as the fighting starts it it feels like we're supposed to see Broly as the antagonist again I don't know if anyone else saw it that way that's just kind of how I interpreted the movie like like it wanted to have Broly as the protagonist but they didn't want to fully commit to it 
Like, because obviously you can't make Goku and Vegeta the bad guys, per se, but, like, I don't know, it just... Like, like if the movie kind of wanted to subvert our expectations as to who we should be rooting for, that'd be one thing, but the way the story was being told and the way the fight was being handled, I, I found it kind of confusing about, like, which side the movie wanted us to be on, and I have to be honest, I'm not sure if that was done entirely on purpose. Like, I kind of feel like the movie was a bit little confused about that. Um, but again, that's just the way I see it. With that being said, I still give this movie a lot of credit in that Broly is a way more sympathetic and likable character than I thought they could ever make him. Like, I honestly had no expectation for Broly going into this movie. Broly-yama is one of the most human and sympathetic characters that Toriyama has written in Dragon Ball in a long time. Yeah. Uh, like, he is a victim of child abuse by Paragus being very abusive, forcing him to do things he doesn't want to do, and, like, torturing him with his electric shock collar. Basically stunting Broly's, like, mental growth as well, which is why he doesn't have a very robust vocabulary. Like, I love how Toriyama is able to twist this feature of Broly, that he didn't talk much. He was just, like, a big guy with boots strength into like an actual like integral part of his character that is informed by his backstory in a meaningful way because the because broly can't communicate because he he hasn't been taught how to communicate other than with his fist other than like fighting with things like that's how that's demonstrated like in his like story about how he befriended that monster on vampa he befriended it through fighting. Like, that's how he ex he's learned how to express his emotions because he's not able to talk with, and he hasn't had anyone to talk to or anyone ha to teach him how to communicate how he feels or, like, l express how he feels responsibly. And so, like, Broly is incredibly nuanced and rich character which is, stands in sharp contrast to the original broly who is evil who is who went insane because a uh, groku cried a lot as a kid and that made him a murderous psychopath what do you think <laughs> v lord uh, how do you feel about broly's character in the movie um they made broly an actually good character yeah we already said that but why why we lord because he's not just like in the original movies, he's just like a completely flat character that's fueled by rage for Goku crying. I already said that too. Well, it's the main point. Broly in the old movies was terrible, and here they actually give him a sympathetic backstory and actual and like an actual like character growth of sorts, where like you can actually like feel sorry for him, and like you actually are glad that he's like okay in the end. Would you say that Broly's the protagonist of this film? This film is about his emotional development. I'd say to an extent, yes. Would you say that it's this film is it's kind of like an origin story for Broly almost? Like this is like setting the groundwork for Broly's future appearances in this franchise. Oh yeah, definitely. He's definitely gonna show up again. Mm -hmm. Same with Chilai. I mean, yeah. yeah. Chilai got way way popular. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, if that isn't evident by the time, the all the fan art of Broly and Chile floating on uh, my Twitter timeline every day. But yeah, I mean, so I think 
that Toriyama did an amazing job with Willie and all the new characters in this movie, like Lemo and Chilai, they're all really warm and endearing. And you, I want to see more of them. I hope, and with the way the movie ends, like it leaves the door open to see more of them, which makes me really excited. I cannot believe how much I love the dynamic between the three of them. Like, I don't know how Toriyama did it, but like, you know, we barely spend, like, as much time with them as I think we could have. But, like, at the same time, like, the, the time that we do spend with them, I mean, it's it's just enough to, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how he managed these charming characters in, like, the little time that he had to in this movie because somehow it worked. Yeah, I mean, especially since his script was originally, like, three hours long. Like, he, like, they really edited this down to, like a really really like uh, still immaculate degree that like uh, still there's so much character expressed here and you feel like there's a complete arc for these characters and also i think that it's really great to see characters like lemon chile because like they those are characters that i feel really expand the world in an interesting way for one thing they kind of give more like insight into what kind of people work for frieza Whereas in previous, like, you know, in the series and in previous films, the Resurrection F, you know, it's like, oh, everyone who works for Frieza is just a bad guy. They don't have, like, their own motivations or anything. They're just, like, there to, you know, get punched a lot. And they're, I guess they're evil for evil's sake. But, like, here, like, with Lemo and Chela, you're saying, oh, these are, like, people who work for Frieza. Like, he doesn't just, like... Listen, he doesn't just, like, find some random people who can't think for themselves. Like, there's all sorts of people who are working for Frieza here. They all have their own motivations that are not, like, like they're evil people, necessarily. But, like, you know, some people don't have any choice. Some people are, like, you know, this is just a job. And I like seeing that kind of expanded and give us a better sense of, okay, there's, like, more... All these people in this universe, like they, there's more to them than just like, oh, this is the one characteristic of their species or their race. This is what I also really liked about all the backstory stuff at the beginning and seeing like more of Planet Vegeta and stuff. Because in previous depictions of Science and Planet Vegeta, like all the Science have like one personality. They like the fight. But here we see that there's not all Science are like the same person. Like, they have different personalities. They have different interests. Not all of them are actually great fighters. I mean, there are still of warrior race. But it's like, you can understand that, oh, this is a society that functions with different people a part of it doing different jobs. They don't all just fight. Which makes it feel like more like a real society. Like, that the scenes are more like a real, like, fictional people that have, like, diverse areas of interest, diverse things going on in their, like, society which i really appreciated i like seeing characters like beats who is like oh he's not he's not like a fighter he's like a ship technician he has never transformed into a great ape you know he doesn't have any combat experience but like you know he's still a saiyan and you know there's a lot of other characters like him who are like they're not fighters but they're like a part of this warrior culture still and they still have a place inside of that and i think it's like more fully fleshed out and more interesting to be characterized in that way. That these are not all the same. The signs are not all the same person. They're not all just one personality. That, that that they're like a race of people defined by a culture of fighting. But it's not like everyone is a fighter. Yeah, that definitely was really interesting. Um, at the risk of veering too much from the conversation, I just 
I, I'm really curious because, um, for those who may not know, uh, this movie does incorporate Toriyama's Dragon Ball Minus chapter that was included in the volume release of Jack of the Galactic Patrolman. And from what I've seen, like, a lot of people really dislike that chapter. I personally, I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't love it, but I don't really hate it either. Uh, but what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that material in particular? I'm actually really curious. As Mr. Fusion uh, of Dragon Ball the Section puts it best, like, Dragon Ball Minus is not a story. It is a a series of plot points that is delivered blandly and without fanfare. But in this movie, in Dragon Ball Super Broly, it is part of a larger story, and it is given so much more characterization, and it is actually told like a story. Yeah. For Bardock... Uh, like, in the Dragon Ball Super Minus chapter, Bardock just figures out that Frieza is going to blow up Planet Vegeta. While as here in the movie, you can actually see, like, the development of his thought process until, like, him having that position. And not only that, what's really important about how the story is told in the film is that we have actual actors who are, like, able to infuse a lot of character into the performances like Sunny Straits Bardock does a great job of like selling like a lot of this dialogue and a lot of like what's being discussed from Bardock about like how he feels and like how he's coming to this decision because you like can definitely get from his performance like oh first it's just him musing mm, musing especially oh it's a possibility you know if we don't like Freezer if he doesn't like us maybe he's gonna kill us it's like in a humorous way but then uh, when he hears about, like, that Frieza has been asking around about the super sign, it, you can hear in his voice how it's clicked in his head that, oh my gosh, no, this is actually a serious danger. And you can also understand from, like, the performance, his performance, like, the depth of how he feels towards, like, his wife and his son, and, like, how he feels about this situation, and how, like, his line about, you know, I've spent my whole life destroying things. And now I just want to save something. My Kakarot. Like a film is a combination of various elements that come together to like, um, and sell, uh, a, sell like characters, sell a story. So with Dragon Ball Minus, we only had what Toriyama drew and wrote on the page. But with Minus, we have music, we have voice acting, we have care, we have like more expression that's being able to be told through the character animation. And all of that is what really sells this backstory, which in Dragon Ball Minus just was like, it didn't feel like it had any character, any really emotional impact to anything that happened at all, because we didn't know Bardock or Jine. But here, we are given just enough amount of time, and the performances are just so full of life, and so clearly informed with an idea in mind of what history these characters have, that we can empathize, sympathize, and feel emotionally invested in them. I've seen this movie twice now, and I both times was getting teary-eyed at the moment where Bardock and Ginny are sending Goku away. Um, I hated the concept of Dragon Ball Minus for a long time because it is like a complete betrayal of what was so great about not only Goku's origin, but the Bardock special and how unique that story was. But I think the execution in Dragon Ball Minus is 
just excellent and goes a long way into salvaging that story. I still don't think it's like a perfect like sequence of events. I think like if we had more time with Bardock, see more of his development from becoming from like an uncaring, discompassionate fighter to someone who would care about his family, you know, it would be even stronger. But I think there's just there's just enough in this movie to make it impactful and a worthwhile part of this film. Yeah, like, the way I see mine is compared to its execution in Broly is, like, the the, the Minus manga chapter in particular, to me, just kind of feels like, oh, hey, here's here's a bunch of things to enter in the Dragon Ball wiki. Like, that that's, that's what it feels like to me. Like, like you said, like, it doesn't feel like a story. It just feels like, it just feels like plot points to add to, add to the wiki or whatever. Whereas here, like, yeah, like I, you know, like I said, I... You know, like I felt nothing really reading that original minus manga chapter, but like here, like you said, I, I really felt like I actually felt the emotion in you know Goku departing from his parents. Like even though I personally prefer the the original Bardock special, and in in my mind anyway, I consider that I consider that more canon. Uh, anyway, I I hate throwing that word around, but it's like. To 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 me, that's that's a more that's a, a more interesting backstory comparatively. But like, uh, the, the the way this was executed in the movie, I I didn't mind it, and I like I I feel like I could accept it a little bit more as a part of the lore. It feels a little more digestible. Definitely, I mean, it's also a valuable part of this bigger narrative. Like Dragon Ball Minus is there to illustrate the contrast between. Goku's backstory and Broly's backstory and their relationship with their parents, like the loving relationship that Goku's parents had towards him and how they sent him off to another world for his own safety as opposed to Paragus. Uh, and as opposed to Broly's origin where he is sent off to another world to basically die. And Paragus arrives in that world not to rescue Broly, but to train him and use him as a weapon of his revenge. Like, it's an important contrast to illustrate kind of the difference between Goku's upbringing and Broly's upbringing and how, how that has led to them becoming so vastly different people, even though at their core, there's a, they have a lot in common between them as low-class warriors who had a lot of potential that was not really recognized or appreciated at their birth. But whereas Goku had mentor figures in his life who taught him how to use that power and taught him to grow into, you know, albeit an immature, but still like an emotionally complete adult, Broly is damaged and he has not really been able to grow up into a fully functional person yet. And through the influence of Limo and Chilai, he's starting to grow and starting to mature, be able to mature now and heal from like his abuse. But like I, the purpose of Minus and illustrating like the difference and then like selling like the warmth and kindness that Goku shows towards Broly and like, like what he recognizes in him and appreciates about in him, like I think is very important. God, I love that moment where like Goku actually takes a moment in the fight to be like, hey, Broly, you know, you don't have to fight, right? Yeah, he senses that Broly is not a bad person. He doesn't really want to fight. And like he tells him, you know, it's okay. You don't have to listen to what they tell you to do. And it's so nice to see this Goku back. To see Goku, who, who the Goku who is kind and 
compassionate and cares about the well-being of others as opposed to like how in super goku would make decisions that would be at the cost of others or do something really insensitive like goku is naive but he's not like so selfish that he would go that he would do something that would hurt the people around him and like like even like when it came to like you know him fighting frieza like at the like at the very least he made sure that everybody was evacuated off of the dying planet namek before he actually you know kept fighting frieza yeah i really really was happy with goku's characterization in this film this felt the true to goku's character in a way that you know the series has not been in a while i feel at least in super yeah, And, you know, even though I still enjoy Resurrection F, he was definitely out of character in Resurrection F, too. Yeah, they, they've really been focusing on the more, like, selfish aspects of Goku, which they do exist, but, like... Right, I mean, at yeah. the end of the film, he does say, oh, you know, I'd like to fight Broly uh, still, but, like, you know, that's not his first priority. Like, it's, he, he comes to deliver them supplies and to check up on their health and well-being. Like, you know... Goku is not just, like, so obsessed with fighting that it puts everything else aside. Like, Goku cares about, you know, the well-being of the people around him first. And then fighting comes as a second priority. Like, you know, he'll not put people in danger just to enjoy a fight. Which is, which is really interesting considering, like, near the end of the actual Dragon Ball manga, like, I think Bulma gives him shit for, like... For not, like, visiting her for, like, five years. And Goku's just like, oh, you know, like, I, I still visited you. <laughs> or whatever. Um, but yeah, like, I, I, I enjoyed that about the movie, too. Where it's like, it, it was just such a, a breath of fresh air. Like you said, compared to Super. Where it's like, Goku is just this this selfish guy all the time. And, like, is constantly putting other people's lives at risk. And But, you know, he doesn't really care. Because he, he gets the fight. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. Like... I, I remember that being a big point of contention when we were when we were talking about Super on the podcast a couple months ago. Just the basic flanderization of all of our beloved characters. <laughs> yeah, basic. But yeah, everyone felt true to character in this film in just a really satisfying way. Um, I think the only other thing like I really wanted to bring up was because uh, there, there's a point in the movie where uh, you know because Paragus is controlling Broly through this shock collar, which is just just cruel. And I really felt something for Broly there. But, like, you know, there there is a point where Chi-Li, like, steals the remote control. And obviously that's supposed to come in later where Paragus is like, oh, no, where's my remote control? I kind of wish there was a moment where, like, I mean, I mean maybe maybe it would have been a betrayal. I don't know. Like, I guess it's still in, in Chi-Li's character. But I, I almost wish there could have been a moment where, like, maybe maybe Paragus was about to whip out the remote, like, while he while Broly's fighting Goku and maybe like maybe it would have given a chance for Chi Li to kind of like stand up for Broly. I think I I just wish maybe there was some kind of like just just a moment like that in the movie. But I'm also fine with the way the story turned out. Still, for the most part, uh, that that might be just a nitpick on my end. <laughs> I was satisfied with like uh, how Paragus was dealt with in this film. He, I love how he just kind of dies, and it's just such a nothing death. Well, see, what I like about it is that he dies in the same manner that he killed Beats. Like, he just coldly killed Beats at the beginning, you know, to for his own benefit. You know, preserve food for himself. 
And then in the climax of the film, Frieza kills Peregris for similarly petty and selfish reasons to turn Broly into a Super Saiyan using his father's death as a motivator. And I think that was a satisfying, like, you know, comeuppance for the character. For someone who had, you know, had, you know, callously and cruelly treated others for a long time to be killed off in such a cruel and callous way. See, this is why I need to see the movie again, because I didn't think about it that way. But now that you mention it, it I think thematically it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. If I have one, like, dissatisfaction with Paragus in the film, I mean, I think Paragus as a character is really great. Because even though he is just an awful person, he's an abusive father, and he's is really easy to hate because of how much you sympathize with Broly, you can also understand where he's coming from to us and extent. Because, you know, he's dealing with this kid who is way stronger than him, like, who is probably cost him his fair share of like grief in terms of like being able to control him because um you know he's lost i'm sure like scuffles with broly is how he lost his eye and he's also had to live on planet wampa in these like harsh like inhospitable conditions so you can see understand like why he has been warped the way he is into being such a kind of a monster and you know there's this important line where he says to chili like don't pretend you can understand what we've been through that i think is important to understand perkis's character like he has been through like a lot of shit as well but he is indisputably the bad guy in the situation and like an abusive parent that broly needs to be escaped needs to escape from I do think, though, my dissatisfaction is I wish that, you know, obviously Broly reacts with grief at seeing his father's death, and that triggers his transformation into his legendary Super Saiyan form that we all know and love. But I wish that at the end of the film, we had some reflection of of, of Broly on Paragus. Is that because, you know, Broly did clearly love Paragus. You know, he was his father. He, he told them when she like, you know, it's not right for you to talk bad about him. He's my dad. So I wish at the end of the film there was like a moment of like Broly like quietly grieving and then he and him being consoled or like you know Goku dropping off Paragus's body and helping Broly bury him or like even mentioning that you know if you want you can bring him back with the Dragon Balls in a year or something you know just some closure to that aspect that I don't think Broly really got in in regards to his relationship with his father. But at the same time, I'm also happy that Broly is moving on with his new surrogate family, which will be much healthier for his emotional development. I think that's why I called it a nothing death, because, like, it's just kind of glossed over. And, like like you said, we Broly doesn't really have a moment to, like, reflect on the death of his father at all. Mm-hmm. That might be something that was cut out of this theatrical cut of the film, because I'm I definitely suspect that there was more that they made. There were more, even though that they cut down so much from Toriyama's script, there was even more that they have animated that they did not include in this theatrical cut that might be included later uh, in the home video release, much like how Battle of Gods has an extended edition of 20 minutes of more footage. Oh my god, I would would love that so much. (laughs) I definitely suspect that to be the case uh, for the beginning and ending sessions of the film in particular, because there are definitely scenes in the Dragon Ball backstory minus portion that seem to be missing. Like, 
you can see in the scene where Freeze is blowing up Planet Vegeta that when you see Bardock firing his blast, or even when you see Frieza throwing his like energy ball, there are Frieza soldiers standing in front of him that he's firing at. So, and also when you see Bardock firing his blast and to start in retaliation, you see that there are soldiers around him and he's noticeably battle damaged. Which leads me to believe that there is, like, a scene of Bardock doing what he did in the original Bardock special, like, fighting against Frieza soldiers and challenging Frieza. Or maybe even not just Frieza soldiers, but other Saiyans who don't believe that he's right and thinks he's gone crazy. So, I think that's a scene that is missing from this theatrical cut that might be in the extended edition on home video. Hmm, maybe. And then scenes towards the end, like I think there's probably more Lemo and Shilai scenes in the climax uh, that build up like them stealing the Dragon Balls from uh, Kikuno and then making their wish. And then in the resolution, maybe more scenes of them acclimating to life on Vampa that are not in this uh, theatrical cut. So those are what I would expect from a potential extended edition. That was also that was also one of my only like complaints about the movie was that it, it felt like the fight ended a little too abruptly but also at the same time like you know uh lemo and chi lai just they, they just wanted to protect their friends so it's like you know what else could they do mm-hmm. um but i mean oh we got we had to mention frieza uh yeah, Frieza is my favorite character in the film. I think uh, because he's this is some of his best showings ever, and I think he was amazing in Resurrection F and Super. But Frieza in this film really walks a great line between the scheming puppet master and this just hilarious Joker. Like he has gone full. He's 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 transformed from the dark side of. Dragon Ball to the Lex Luthor, and I really enjoy that a lot. It's like a, like I've said on the show before. He's basically become the Aku of Dragon Ball, where it's like yeah. he still he still holds a huge threat, and you are for the most part you are scared of what he's capable of and what he's scheming. But like he still has his moments of levity and comedy, especially from like the like from the pettier side of his personality, which is great. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I really didn't know what kind of role he was going to have in this movie, but like, I'm, I think I'm pretty much 100% satisfied with his stuff in this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie, I think, has really justified Frieza continuing to have a presence in this story, because it opens up so many more doors for like, what could be explored in the future. And definitely the movie ends on a note that uh, definitely tease that, you know, he has more machinations in mind. And uh, definitely with the success of this movie, uh, I'm sure they're looking to use as much freeze as possible and uh, possibly my older characters even more. So uh, look forward to Dragon Ball Super Cooler in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> they're totally going to do that. Oh, I-, I fully expect them to make Cooler canon. And like, I've been talking about this with my friends and stuff, but like really out of all the movie villains besides Broly, like... Cooler's really the only one that I think is worth actually examining. Like, all the other ones are pretty lame and don't really have much to them other than, hey, we're we're, we're basically a rehash of what you've seen in the series and we're here to fight you. I mean, if they improve those characters on the same way they did Broly, then I would be down for pretty much any one of them returning. But, like, Cooler... I think is definitely one of the more popular and uh, definitely one of the characters that would fit easiest into the lore of the canon. So 
you could definitely uh, reuse him. I think he's the one that you could probably get the most out of, because let's be honest, like, I mean, do you want to see a Garlic Jr. movie? Do you want to see a Lord Slug movie? Do you want to see a Turles movie? Oh, how about a Janimba movie? <laughs> well, actually, all those characters, if you improve them like Broly, you they you could make them good. Like Broly as a character, I would I would not have been interested in. I you know I was tri- I had skepticism of them bringing Broly back and making him canon. And now I think Broly is like one of the best new characters to be added into this franchise. Like best new old characters in a weird way. But like he went from a character that had like nothing going for him in terms of character to a lot. So you could probably revitalize a lot of those older characters in interesting ways. And a lot of them have backstories steeped in series lore that you could probably explore in an interesting way, too. I mean, Lord Slug is probably the only one it would be hard to do because he's like the evil half of the Grand Elder who is dead now. So I don't know how you do that unless you bring back the Grand Elder. I don't know. But can you really really do anything with people like garlic jr and turles though i mean turles is a yeah, sand shore turles but is like... actually a great ki- turles was actually a great villain honestly like the way he was kind of a, he served as a good contrast to goku in terms of like oh here is this scion who is cold and calculating but and he also has an interesting kind of backstory in which he's a space pirate and he's rescued all these other ne'er-do-wells from across the space to become part of his crew so I think you could do a lot with Turles, honestly. You just have to like not make it, not make the point of him being evil Goku as much because we already had Goku Black yeah. and Super. But you could do stuff with him. But I mean, do you? I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm skeptical of any other movie character besides Cooler, honestly. But I'm I'm willing to be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only one that I would, you know, have no optimism for would be Bojack if they tried to do something with him, because there is nothing to Bojack at all. I have friends who like that movie is like their favorite movie, and even and even they have admitted to me that yeah, you can't do shit with him. <laughs> Bojack doesn't appear until thirty minutes into the movie. He does. Oh it's God. a fifty-minute movie, and he doesn't. Sh- the main villain doesn't show up until thirty minutes in. In fact, the villains don't show up until halfway into the movie, 25 minutes in. It's That's like, pretty, yeah. I, I, it's just controversial, I know, because people do enjoy that movie, but I think that's the worst Dragon Ball movie. I rewatched them all from start to finish, ever, from the first Dragon Ball movie to now Dragon Ball Super Broly, and I can definitely tell you that I think Bojack Unbound is the worst one. I like parts of that movie. I like the tournament part of that movie. Everything else I after don't even that, like, I... The only part of the tournament thing is that I guess Trunks vs. Tenshinhan is decent, but then it pissed me off with, like, Krillin being so out of character and cowardly. I get the fight with Piccolo. He's fought Piccolo before, you know? Krillin is shouldn't be this much of a coward. Like, one of the worst things about those old movies is how much they flanderize Krillin to be so pathetic. It's just really disappointing. That's why Bio Broly is actually, I think, mid-rank, if only because Krillin actually gets to look respectable in that movie. Mm. I mostly like that movie because I like the inclusion of Mr. Satan in 18. That's pretty much what I'm here for. <laughs> That's also a huge factor in its favor, for sure. Um, 
Okay, but I I think I think overall any any nitpicks or actual criticism we have of this movie aside, again the very few of them that we have together, like this is still probably probably the best Dragon Ball movie ever made. Yeah, I would say so in terms of like the overall quality of it. I don't know if it's my favorite. It's really toying the line with me because, man, I it. <sighs> It's really up there with Battle of Gods and Pat the Power with, for me. Like, those are my top three now. So, I, I don't know where it'll overall end up. But the fact that I'm going to go see it a third time in the theaters before it, it's out of theaters, you know, it's a good, huge point in its favor, I think, that it'll end up being my favorite overall. Hell, before we recorded today, I was legitimately looking up, like, showtimes throughout the next week here and trying to plan when I can go see it again. The fact that I want to go see a movie again in theaters really says something about me personally because I I don't usually see movies twice. Like usually when I see a movie theaters, like you know I enjoy it uh, and I might think about it, but you know I'm like you know like I'm not made of money. I, I can't spend ten dollars every time I want to see a movie. But like you know I I just I need to see this movie again. I really yeah. I, I need to. I want to. I need more Broly in my life, and that's not something I thought I'd ever say. Yeah, even if I have to see it alone my next time around, I want to see it again, for sure. Like, I, I just, I need one more time with this film before I have to wait until the home video release in a couple months. Oh, man. I Yeah, I need this movie again. I think that wraps up our thoughts on Dragon Ball Super Broly for now. Uh, definitely, I plan to record an at movies on it in which we discuss it more in depth and from different angles and a whole bunch of other fun stuff in a couple weeks. So you can look forward to that. But I think we'll round off with some community shout outs. And in the spirit of Dragon Ball Super Broly, I want to recommend some channels that analyze Dragon Ball from a really great uh, and very different angles. First off is Mr. Fusion's Dragon Ball Dissection series, where he has been for many years dissecting the manga from beginning to end, analyzing its storytelling and how Toriyama's writing has changed over the course of the story. And I always enjoy watching his videos. His analysis of Dragon Ball is really articulate. And even if I don't agree with his points some of the times even if I have different perspectives than him like he explains his position in such a way that I can completely understand where he's coming from and uh, agree with his analysis even if my feelings towards his towards what he's critiquing are different which I really appreciate and he is currently a little bit past ways through the cell arc right now in terms of analyzing the manga uh, he is, he's done reviews of like, uh, the first 10 Dragon Ball movies. So the first three Dragon Ball movies and the first seven DBC movies. He basically covers like the movies, uh, in, it went in order of like when they take place, uh, or when they were released during the original manga serialization. So like he reviews the movies around the same time as like when, where he's at in the manga basically where when they would have come out like in Japan or that's what really that cool, same time actually. is and by doing it that way like he's able to like make observations that you know uh you you might not think about like years later like going through this media like down the line without context but like in the context he can make observations that are very interesting like huh the return of cooler had dende as the guardian of the earth 
eight months before Toriyama actually did that in the manga. How how did that happen? Very interesting questions like that he is able to explore by reviewing the series like in order and in context with like all in relation with all the other media. And uh, he some of my favorite videos that he's done is his uh, trilogy of videos on the Bardock specials, which is a great look on how different authors interpreted the character of Bardock and how they handled prequels and backstories. I think those are some of his best videos at, uh, to date, and I would highly recommend them. But I recommend the entirety of Dragon Ball Kitchen itself. It's like he's you drag, Mr. Fusion is one of my favorite channels on YouTube, and I always eagerly await his new videos. Uh, and I also want to recommend Anime AJ's channel. He's uh, done some great animation analysis of Dragon Ball of Dragon Ball Super specifically when Dragon Ball Super was running he was like doing animation analysis videos after every episode like from the Tournament of Power onwards basically and he's able to come up with some really great insights and observations on the animation on uh, what makes it stand out and also like especially who worked on the animation who did the animation and how to spot like their signature quirks and what makes their style of animation special and also generally he has well worse in the production history of dragon ball and like the production of dragon ball so it's you it's a very informative channel with very like well-researched analysis and he's done an animation analysis video of dragon ball super broly so if you wanted to learn more about the animation of Broly, kind of learn who worked on the film, who did which scenes, definitely check out that video because it's really educational and it'll really, really help you appreciate like the sheer craft and like the sheer talent involved in this film, for sure. So Mr. Fusion and Anime AJ, they both approach Dragon Ball from different an angles in their analysis, but they are like the cream of the crop of Dragon Ball YouTube channels. And I think with that, that does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks. Mm, yes, definitely. Thanks for listening. And uh, I guess, yeah, we'll just uh, we'll just start plugging our own stuff. Uh, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumramayasha on Twitter and wherever uh, there is a Lumramayasha on the internet. That is where you can find me, like places like Amulet and Amish Revelation. I also write reviews for all-comic.com, including a review for Dragon Ball Super Broly. So uh, hopefully that will be up by the time you're listening to this. And if you want my, more of my thoughts on the film, you can definitely read that as well. And link should be in the description. All right. Yeah, definitely go check that out when it's up. And so, uh, as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also do a few other podcasts, uh, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, over at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com. Uh, so if you're a fan of Gintama, please check that out. I also record One Podcast Prevails over at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Uh, it's a podcast I record with my friend Doctor over at the Ass Backwards Anime Podcast about uh, Detective Conan or Case Closed, uh, whatever it's called. So if you're a fan of that series, please go check it out. Uh, but as for the podcast, you can find every episode of our podcast first over at all-comic.com. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. Uh, but if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular, you want to follow us 
on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks, as well as mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, you can also listen to our podcast on Spotify over at spotify.com. Just putting that out there. Uh, you should also subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we upload excerpts from the podcast, such as different news pieces, uh, reviews of whatever we talk about on the show, uh, as well as some exclusive content every once in a while. So please go subscribe to our YouTube channel. Again, that's youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, what do you think about Dragon Ball Super Broly? How many times have you seen it in theaters? Uh, is it your favorite Dragon Ball movie? Um, email us anything about the podcast, whatever we talk about, or just whatever you're reading. Uh, over at mangamavericks at gmail.com and we will read it on the show but the most important thing guys is that you subscribe rate and review us on apple podcasts you know that really helps the visibility of our show uh so please do that if you so wish um but yeah that's gonna be about it for this episode uh this has been episode 74 of the podcast and we will see you guys next time for episode 75 bye guys sayonara sayonara